The title of this sermon is, Should Christians Support Socialism? Should Christians Support Socialism? We're going to be bouncing around in the Bible. Most of your verses will be in your worship guide and up on the screen. Should Christians Support Socialism? We're going to talk about politics today. Now that brings up a question, should the church be talking about politics at all? The reason why that question arises in the first place is because many people think that the Constitution of the United States says that religion and politics should not mix. In fact, people often use the phrase, the separation of church and state, sort of as a weapon to minimize the influence of the church and of pastors on politics and on the political process. But you need to know, for those of you who don't already, that the words separation of church and state are not in the Constitution. They're not, that means they're not a part of the law. Okay, And so just, just set that aside. That, does, that should not influence how we behave. What is in the law is the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. And the very First Amendment says this. This is the law. It says that, number one, the federal government it says two things about religion. It says, number one, that the federal government cannot prohibit the free exercise of religion. And number two, it says that the federal government cannot establish a religion. And so if you put those two together, that means that the federal government cannot stop people from exercising their religion or force people to exercise a religion. It says nothing about preachers talking about politics or what the church can or cannot talk about. In fact, what's also included in the First Amendment is a a protection for free speech. It says the federal government cannot prohibit free speech. And so you put those two together, the federal government has no business interfering or, or, or influencing or trying to tell a church or a pastor what they should be talking about. And even if the, the, the Constitution, even if the law did try to tell a pastor what he should and should not say, that should not influence a real biblical pastor. God determines what a pastor talks about, not the government. Now, the only time that the church should not talk about an issue is if God doesn't care about it or if the Bible is silent on it. Now, the Bible's not silent about politics. The Bible is full of politics, full of wisdom that was heavily influential on the founders of our country, matter of fact. So the Bible talks about politics, but also God cares about politics because God cares about you. And you are greatly influenced and impacted by politics. And therefore, God cares about politics. And so we need to talk about it. And the problem is that most Christians have only heard about politics from the media and from politicians and from school teachers. And they've never heard about politics from the perspective of a pastor or a theologian. And that's a big problem. That means most of our politicians, most of our teachers, most of our media who are teaching the nation about politics have never heard about politics from the perspective of the Bible and a theologian. That's a problem. And so we need to be doing this on a regular basis. We need to be talking about political issues from a biblical perspective. In fact, I believe that a big reason why our country is where it is today is because this has not been happening for the past few generations. And so we're going to do that today. Why talk about the particular issue of socialism. It's because socialism has been on the rise rapidly in our country. Most of you guys, um, and by the way, the question we're discussing, should Christians support socialism? Let me just give you my answer and then I'm going to unpack why. The answer is socialism. The answer is no. Socialism is an evil political system that must be rejected by Christians. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to explain what it is and, and why. It's an evil political system that must be rejected by Christians. 
As I said, socialism has been on, on the rise in the United States for about the past 100 years or so. But just in the last presidential election, as you know, Bernie Sanders ran openly for president as a socialist. Now, he called himself a democratic socialist. Some people said he was a capitalist socialist, uh, but a socialist nonetheless. And he was indeed a socialist. And many people supported him. In fact, he got his, his greatest and most enthusiastic support from what? From who? The, the, the millennials, the young voters. And so he got a lot of support, which is very alarming. The other thing that's alarming is that many Christians have never thought about socialism from a biblical perspective. They've never been taught the evils of socialism. And the further we get away from um, you know, communist Russia and the, the, the Berlin Wall and things like that, the more people forget about the evils of communism and socialism. So what is socialism? Real quick, there are many different forms of socialism or shapes that socialism can take. I'm going to give you two that are most relevant for our conversation. The first is called Marxism or Marxist socialism. And uh, it's named after Karl Marx, the author of the Communist Manifesto written in the the 1800s, co-authored by Marx. Marx is considered to be the father of socialism. And Marx believed that private property ownership is evil. Private property ownership is evil and it's the cause of a great a great matter of human suffering, a great lot of human suffering. And Marx was a heavy believer in Darwinian evolution. So he believed that human beings were evolving and that we were eventually going to evolve. It was our destiny, is our destiny, to evolve from evil capitalism to communism. And so Karl Marx believed that the way to get there is through socialism. He believed that there was a class war being waged between the evil capitalists, the business owners, the property owners called the bourgeoisie, and the workers or the employees called the proletarians. And he believed these two people were in a struggle and eventually the workers of the world would unite and they would forcefully take the property and the industry all from the business owners and the capitalists and they would willingly give it to the government to completely control everything for the sake of the people. And that eventually, because we're evolving, what Marx believed is that eventually we would evolve from socialism, which is the state, the government, controlling all private property, all business, all industry, everything. Eventually we would evolve to communism, where we would no longer need any government, and everybody would be completely equal and share all things in common. And so Karl Marx believed that socialism was a midway point, a necessary midway point between evil capitalism and a utopian communistic society. The midway point was that the government should own and control all property, all of the means of production, money. That means you personally would not own anything. The government at any point can come in and say, you can't have that. We'll take it away. It's not about the rights of the individual. It's about what's best for the collective, for society. Therefore, if society decides that you should no longer live, you should no longer uh, own that business, you should no longer live in that house, you should no longer be able to have any more kids, well, then the government can just come and say, sorry, we're in charge, you're not, you have no rights. The goal of socialism is to alleviate poverty and inequality. And that sounds great, and this is why it's so deceptive and why so many millions of people have bought into it. Now, the United States has adopted a different form of socialism, kind of watered down, and it's, you could call it big government European-style socialism. Big government European-style socialism. Some people call it statism. Some people call it progressivism. And 
It still allows for the ownership of private property. It still allows for private business ownership to a degree, but it essentially views the government as the solution to every problem, the provider of every need, the shield from every danger. In the words of Jim DeMint, the president of the Heritage Foundation, he wrote, Socialists believe that almost every need, cause, or activity should be supported, regulated, or controlled by the federal government. The goals of this big government European-style socialism are equality of outcome, not necessarily equality of opportunity, and of course to alleviate poverty. The method is to give the government all the power and all the money that it needs, not necessarily all of it, but all that it needs, so that the government can make sure it can create all the regulations, all the rules, all the laws, and spread the wealth around in the way that's most equitable. The essential nature of socialism is the redistribution of wealth. It's for the government to take money from one person and to give it to another person. You can hear this ideology coming from people like Bernie Sanders, who says that you deserve free college. The government ought to pay for your college. The government ought to pay for your child care. The government ought to pay for your health care. The government ought to give you a free house. The government ought to give you uh, a living wage. The government ought to give you this and this and this and this. Okay, This is what you're, you're hearing. This is this big government European-style socialism. Here's a simple, simple definition of the socialism that has crept into the United States. Simple definition is this. Alleviate poverty and inequality through the redistribution of wealth. Alleviate poverty and inequality. Those sound like noble things. Alleviate poverty and inequality through the redistribution of wealth. Here's a definition or a description of socialism from an actual socialist. His name is Alan Mass. He wrote the book, The Case for Socialism. He writes this. Socialism is based on the idea that we should use the vast resources of society to meet people's needs. Notice how seductive this is. It seems so obvious. If people are hungry, they should be fed. If people are homeless, we should build homes for them. If people are sick, the best medical care should be available to them. That word should, by the way, is a moral term. Should. We should. A socialist society, he goes on, would take the immense wealth of the rich. Notice the word take. It would take the immense wealth of the rich and use it to meet the basic needs of all society. The money wasted on weapons could be used to end poverty, homelessness, and all other forms of scarcity. That sounds very, very good on the surface. You've got to think more deeply about it, and that's what I intend to help you do this morning. As I mentioned, the United States has been rapidly sliding towards, towards socialism, especially since the 1930s, since the period of the Great Depression. Now, until then, an average citizen had very little interaction with the federal government except for getting your mail from the post office, from the mailman. Other than that, the federal government pretty much left you alone, and individuals, churches, charities, organizations, private schools, things like that were left to fend for themselves, solve their own problems, live their own lives however they wanted to. But all that began to change under the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt, who was a socialist during the Great Depression, who used the crisis of the Great Depression, which was government-caused. He used the crisis of the Great Depression to convince our country that it was time to start implementing these European socialistic ideas. Now, that's what you have to look out for as a citizen, is that politicians capitalize on crises. Anytime there's a crisis, whether it's a hurricane, a flood, a war, that's when politicians will come in and say, hey, listen, you see, the government needs more of your money and more control over your life. 
so that we can take care of you sufficiently. And that's when people say, okay, and sign over their rights. And so what Franklin Roosevelt did in the 1930s in response to the Great Depression was to institute what he called the New Deal. And so he created Social Security, and he also created the first welfare program called Aid to to Families with Dependent Children. These were the first two socialist programs in existence. Then in 1965, the next worst president in our history, Lyndon Johnson, he implemented what's called the War on Poverty. The War on Poverty. This was in 1965. And this is whenever he drastically increased the size of the federal government. This is whenever he created Medicare, which is insurance for seniors. He drastically expanded the welfare state to over 77 welfare programs. Today it's over 80. Most of them began during the the presidency of Lyndon B. Johnson. And so today there are over 80 welfare programs which exist, all to alleviate poverty and to ease the suffering of the needy through the redistribution of wealth. Let me illustrate a little bit more how socialism has taken over our nation. Seniors who depend on the federal government, who depend on the federal government for their income or health care, now comprise 20% of the population in our country. As of 2009, 9 million people were on food stamps, 2 million people were receiving housing subsidies, and millions more were receiving government disability benefits. 40% of the federal budget is spent just on Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. That's not including welfare. That's 40% of our federal budget. That's up from 16% in 1966. Social Security, interestingly enough, began as a 2% payroll tax on the first $3,000 of your income. You would pay 1%, your employer would pay the other percent, and it would only benefit a relatively small number of poor seniors. Today, Social Security is the largest government program in the world. It consumes more than 20% of the U.S. budget, costs average Americans 12.5% of every paycheck. And guess what? You're not going to see most of that money. Do you know what happened if you actually saved or invested 12.5% of your income for retirement? You'd have way, way more than Social Security is ever going to give you. In 2010, the government spent about $900 billion on welfare programs, exceeding the cost of the war in Iraq during George W. Bush's presidency. Since the beginning of the war on poverty in 1965, the U.S. has spent more than $20 trillion on welfare. That's more than twice the cost of all U.S. military wars combined. Did you get that? Since 1965, since the war on poverty, we've spent more than $20 trillion on welfare. That's more than the cost, twice the cost, of all U.S. military wars in our history combined. Now, the sad thing is that the poverty rate has stayed the same since the war on poverty began. It's fluctuated between 12 and 15%, depending on the economy. has not gone down. Today, the federal government is spending more on entitlements like welfare and Social Security than it's actually bringing in from taxes. So what that means is that things like the Defense Department, the military, the justice system, interstate highways, homeland security, how are we paying for those things with borrowed money? Because it's taking more than we're bringing in with taxes to pay just for entitlements. Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, food stamps, welfare. 
Again, these are all instances of how our country has become more and more socialistic over time. For the first hundred years, the federal government did very little with your life, influenced your life very little. But that all changed under Franklin Roosevelt and then Lyndon B. Johnson in the 60s. And here we are today with what some call a mixed economy, partly capitalistic, partly socialistic, but we are rapidly increasing and heading toward more and more socialism. So, is socialism supported in the Bible? Is it supported in the Bible? One time, a guy that used to attend our church, he straight up asked me, hey, do you think Jesus was a communist? Where do people get the idea? A lot of people think that the Bible supports socialism. It supports communism. Where do they get this idea? Well, they get it from the picture that we are given of the early church in Acts chapter 4. Look at it with me in Acts 4, 32 through 35. It says, now, the large group... By the way, this is the first church. This is the first church in the book of Acts in Jerusalem. It says, Now the large group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own. But instead they held everything in what? Common. <laughs> That's the root word of communism. And then, And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them, for there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed for each person's basic needs. So it says that nobody said his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Then it says that there was not a needy person among them because they all sold their lands, their houses, and they gave the money to the apostles to distribute or redistribute as they felt was necessary. That sounds an awful lot like communism to some people. What's the difference between that, what we see in the early church, and communism or socialism? Well, the main difference is the word voluntary. The word voluntary the sharing that was going on in the early church was completely voluntary. People were not required to give their money to the apostles. They were not required to give up their private property and give all the money to the apostles. They did this willingly. This was generosity. This was charity. Whereas in a socialistic or uh, communistic economy and, and, and society, you're forced to give up your property, to give up your possessions, to give up your money to the control of the government. Here's an example. In the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 5, there's the story about the infamous couple Ananias and Sapphira. These, this husband and wife, they, they got caught up in the whole culture of generosity, and everybody was giving all, up all their stuff, selling their property, their land, giving the money to the apostles, and everybody was clapping and cheering, I'm sure, and they said, let's, let's get in on this. So they had a piece of property, they sold it, and they gave the money to the church, and they lied about it, though. They said they gave all the money from the property to the church, but they held back some for themselves. And because of that, because of that lie, God killed them instantly. They dropped dead, and great fear swept through the church. But I want you, I want you to notice Peter's words to them before they dropped dead, to Ananias, the, the husband. His words are so important. Peter's words are so important. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it's, it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. Again, what was condemned was not, was not greed, but what? 
dishonesty, lying. Peter said about Ananias' field in verse 4, he said, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? In other words, you didn't have to sell it. It was yours. And then he said in verse 4, and after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? In other words, after you could have sold the field, you did, you sold the field, but then the money, it was yours to do with whatever you pleased. You did not have to give the money or promise to give the money to the church. It was yours. This is a complete respect for private property. That's what makes this passage and, and, and the church in Acts a great example of charity or generosity. You know the word charity comes from the Latin word for love. For an act to be charitable, it has to be voluntary. It has to be a choice. But in a socialistic or communistic society, it's not sharing. It's not generosity. It's not charity. It's confiscation. It's compulsory. The government comes and knocks on your door and says, give us your stuff, give us your property, give us your money so we can redistribute it. And if you don't, you'll face sanctions. You'll, you'll be fined, you'll be put in jail, and in some societies you'll be killed for, for resisting the government. So that's the first big difference between what we see in the early church and socialism, is it's voluntary. The second big difference that we see is that the, the early church was a private organization, not the government. This was a private organization where the early church, its membership was voluntary. People were free to join. They were free to leave at any time they wanted to. Whereas in a communistic or socialistic society, if you live within the geographic boundaries of the state, of the government, then you're forced to participate in this so-called sharing of the wealth. So the Bible does command Christians to show great concern for the poor. Nobody here disputes that. There's no Christian that I know disputes that. But it doesn't say anything about the government caring for the poor. In fact, when the Bible speaks about the government, it talks about the government using the sword to punish evil. Notice in, in Romans 13, 4, it says, For government is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So the Bible says that the fundamental and essential purpose of government is to protect citizens from injury, from injuring each other, from hurting each other, from violence, or from being attacked from, from enemies abroad or enemies at home. That's what it's for, to protect us from theft, from stealing, from things like that. That's the primary purpose of the government. It doesn't say anything about the government meeting needs, feeding and clothing people, educating people, providing medical assistance for people and for its citizens. In fact, on the contrary, the Bible is very clear that each of us is responsible to meet our own needs. You're responsible to care for yourself first and foremost. Galatians 6.5 says, For each person, what? Will have to carry his own load. 1 Thessalonians 3.10-12 You see, in the early church, as it was growing around the world, there was a lot of sharing. A lot of this early this church in Jerusalem, that, that culture spread to all the other churches. So there was a lot of spreading and redistributing of the wealth in the church. And so in the church in Thessalonica, that became a problem. There were some people who were being lazy, who were taking advantage of this system. And so Paul wrote, in fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat, for we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working they may eat their own food. Work, get a job, pay for your own food. That's first and foremost. And if you don't, well, you shouldn't eat. Does that sound Christian to you? It's not the way a lot of people present Christianity today. 
The Bible commands us to help the poor, but the Bible definitely distinguishes between the worthy poor and the unworthy poor. And we're really going to get into this next week. We're going to talk about the biblical solution to poverty in America. That's not today, though. But the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, and don't, don't turn there, we'll get into that next week, but in 1 Timothy, T- Timothy 5, it gives us some clear guidelines for assisting the poor as it talks about helping the widows in the church. It says, first of all, you need to provide for your own needs if you can. If you can work, you should be working. Number two, if you can't, then you must first seek assistance from your family. And families that aren't providing assistance for their family members who are in, in genuine need should be kicked out of the church. Because a person who does not provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever, is what the Bible says. And then third, it says, if you are indeed all alone, don't ha- if you're truly in need, don't have any family to care for you, then you can seek assistance from the church. And then it says the church should provide assistance, but only after a careful examination proves that the person is not immoral or lazy. That's the Bible. We'll talk about that more in depth next week. 1 Timothy 6, 17 17 through 18, talks about the rich. I want you to notice what it says. It says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich. And this is talking about those in the church, those rich people, those rich members in the church. It's instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope in the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share. Paul does not condemn the rich for being rich. He does not command them to to find a place of equality so that everybody should have the same income. No. He says if you're rich, it doesn't mean you're a sinner. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. He just tells the rich how to be godly and rich. Be, Be generous. Be willing to share. Be rich in good deeds. So in summary, the Bible does not support socialism. In fact, it condemns it. And and I want you to know my purpose this morning is not to talk about the ineffectiveness of a socialistic economic system. In other words, as I already told you, from 1965 until today, the government has spent more than $20 trillion on the war on poverty. That's more than all U.S. military wars combined. And yet poverty has not gone down in America. It doesn't work. I don't want to talk about that this morning. And I also don't want to talk about all the different countries that have tried socialism and how socialism has completely devastated their economies. You can go back and read this about Russia and Germany and Brazil, what's going on in Brazil and Venezuela and Greece and Cuba and you name it. You can go on and on and see how, all the, how socialism just destroys countries. It destroys it economically. But this morning I simply want to talk to you as a pastor about why socialism is evil. Number one, five reasons. It's based on theft. It's based on theft. It breaks the eighth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Exodus twenty fifteen says, "Do not what? Do not steal." Ephesians four twenty eight. The New Testament says, "The thief must no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands, so that he is something to share with anyone in need." Our country will never. Be, and this is why this is a spiritual issue, and why the church has to talk about this. We will never be able to rise out of socialism and stop the socialistic trend until our country stops the addiction of stealing. We are addicted to stealing from each other. We are addicted to it, to stealing in America. We've got to get over that. We've got to get past that. When I take something that belongs to you, what's that called? That's called theft. Now, what if I take it from you because I want to give it to a poor person? What's that called? It's still called theft. Doesn't matter my motives. Now, what happens when the government is the one who takes your money and gives it to a poor person? It's still called theft. 
Just because the government's the one doing it doesn't make it moral. In fact, what people would say, but as a democratic society, we, we voted to allow the government to take money from some people and give it to people less fortunate. Well, listen, that doesn't make it moral. If our country democratically voted to make slavery legal again, would that make it morally okay? Or if our country democratically voted to make abortion legal and good, and does that make it moral and good? Absolutely not. Democracy, or might, I should say, does not make right. Majority doesn't determine morality. So, listen, the United States government takes more than one-third of the profits of every business and more than one-third of the income of most working Americans. Taxes are not evil. Taxes are necessary to fund the government, and government is not a bad thing. Government is a necessary thing. We need the government to protect citizens from harm, to maintain the rule of law, to guarantee contracts, for example. Without the government, there would be chaos and anarchy. As Christians, we are not anarchists. We are not anti-government. This is the reason why citizens come together and we voluntarily form a government to protect our rights, to protect us from harm. But when the government takes from one person to give to another... When it takes from one person to serve the needs of another, that's called theft. No one disagrees that the poor should be helped. They should be. The the, the question is, who should be doing the helping? It's for this reason that every entitlement program, including Social Security, food stamps, Medicaid, Medicare, many of the things that that a lot of you guys are on and receiving money on. And and listen, these are things that that, that we as Americans, as Christians, need to start voting against. Because it's theft. It's theft. French economist Frederick Bastiat, he wrote this, It is impossible to introduce into society a greater change or a greater evil than this. The conversion of the law into an instrument of plunder. Plunder is another word for theft. In other words, the greatest thing, evil in society, is whenever somebody uses the law to legalize theft. He says, but how is this legal plunder to be identified? Quite simply, see if the law takes from some persons what belongs to them and gives it to other persons to whom it does not belong. See if the law benefits one citizen at the expense of another by doing what the citizen himself cannot do without committing a crime. In other words, is it legal for a poor person to go to a rich person's house, break in and steal their stuff? Well, what makes it legal for the government to do it? If it's immoral for a private citizen to do it, then it's also immoral for the government to do it. Number two, the second reason why socialism is evil is because it's based on envy. It's based on theft. It's also based on envy, which is the 10th commandment. Exodus twenty seventeen: do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. To covet is the same thing as being jealous or, or to envy. Socialism is based on envy. James Robison and Jay Richards write, Envy leads us to think that if somebody somewhere has something we don't have or has more than we have, then we're entitled to have it as well. Have you noticed that we live in an entitlement society? More than ever before in human history, Americans and, and Western Europeans feel like they are entitled to so much. Where did this entitlement mentality come from? It comes from envy. And we've had politicians for the past 100 years that have planted the seeds in our hearts, the seeds of envy in our our hearts, and who have trained us to look across the fence at our neighbor's life and have said, hey, if your neighbor has it, well, then you ought to have it as well. 
If my neighbors can send his kids to college, well, then I should be able to send my kids to college. If my neighbor can retire at 65, then I deserve to retire at 65. If my neighbor has health insurance, so then I deserve health insurance too. If my neighbor can afford child care, then I deserve child care too. If my neighbor can afford a nice home and a nice car, then I deserve those things too. Listen, you're not entitled, you're envious. The only things that you're entitled to are the things that you earn through diligence and industry and intelligence. Winston Churchill said, Socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. (laughs) Jim DeMint, he wrote that socialism begins with the envy of the rich and the temptation to use government force to take from the rich to give to the poor. Number three, the third reason why socialism is evil is it's based on slavery. It's based on slavery. Forced labor. Nobody here would argue for the morality of forced labor labor or for slavery. But that's exactly what socialism is, indirectly. Listen to the words of the great economist Walter Williams from George Mason University. He wrote, what is the essence of slavery? It's the forceful use of one person to serve the purposes of another person. When Congress, through the tax code, takes the earnings of one person and turns around to give it to another person in the form of prescription drugs, social security, food stamps, farm subsidies, or airline bailouts, it is forcibly using one person to serve the purposes of another. This is nothing less than slavery. He uses another analogy. This is Walter Williams' analogy. I'm going to do my best to present it to you. He said, suppose there are several widows who live in your neighborhood, and they don't have the physical or the financial means to perform the basic household tasks, such as changing the oil in their car, uh, painting their house, mowing their lawn, pulling the weeds, stuff like that. Would you be in favor of the government passing a law that forces you or one of your neighbors, forces you or one of your neighbors to go and to do those jobs for them? Well, of course not. That, 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 would, be, that would be slavery. Uh, or would you be in favor of, of the government passing sanctions for those against those who would disobey the government? Sanctions such as fines and property confiscation and imprisonment if you refused to go and do what the government told you to do for that widow? Of course not. Helping widows is noble. It's good. We're commanded to do it. But the government forcing people to do it? Now, at the same time, what if the government, instead of forcing you or your neighbor to actually perform weekly household tasks for the elderly widows, forced you or your neighbors to give one of the widows $50 of your weekly income? That way, she could at least hire someone to do her chores. Would that be different in the principle from the first scenario? Walter Williams argues, no, because in both situations, the one person is being forcefully used to serve the purposes of the other. That's called slavery. Number four, socialism is based on a lie. It's based on a lie, and that's why it's evil. It's based on a lie. This is a violation of the ninth commandment. Ephesians 4.25, it says, Since you put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. What's the lie that socialism is based on? The lie is that it is the government's job to care for the poor. That's a lie. Now, many people in America (laughs) have never thought about that before. But that's a lie. Are we supposed to have care and concern for the poor? Absolutely. But is it the government's job to care for the poor? No. 
First of all, it's illegal. The federal government does not have the legal authority to care for the poor. You say, well, then how do they do it? Believe me, the federal government does things all the time that are unconstitutional. The United States Constitution, do you know, was written specifically to limit the powers of the federal government. That's why it was written, not to limit our freedoms. It was written specifically to specify, to enumerate the powers of the federal government. And then in the 10th commandment, it says any powers that are not specifically granted to the federal government in the Constitution, well, they are reserved for the people and the states. Well, the Constitution does not say that the federal government has the power to care for the poor. President Thomas Jefferson said, and this was the author of what? The Declaration of Independence. <laughs> he said, a wise and frugal government. His, here's his definition of a wise and frugal government. A wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another. That's it. That's a good government. Restrain men from injuring one another. And then he goes on, which shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. As well, it's not the government's job to take care of the poor because it does not have the means with which to do so. The government, did you know, doesn't have any money. The government doesn't produce anything. The government has no income. The only way the government has money, can get money to help somebody, is if it takes it from somebody else. The government is not a charity that can just help the poor. It has to take money from one person to give to another. And so socialism is based on an absolute lie that it's the government's job to care for the poor. It is not. And finally, number five, socialism is evil because it views the government as God. It views the government as God. We've already looked at several ways that, the so, that socialism breaks the Ten Commandments. It's based on theft, envy, lying, but it also be, breaks the, the very first commandment. Exodus 23 says, Do not have other gods besides me. Proponents of socialism view the government as the solution to every problem, every need, every evil. Anytime that there is a problem in society, the answer is to raise taxes. Just listen to Governor Edwards. The answer is to raise taxes, give the government more control, start a new government agency, and make some new government regulations. That is nothing short than idolatry. It is government worship. Socialism, you know, is very condescending. It views the government as, as basically God. The government is good. The government is there for you. The government is there to help. But it views, has a very, very low view of people. You know, we need the government to take care of us because we can't take care of ourselves. And we can't take care of each other. We need the government to do it. We need the government to tell us how to spend our money because we're not smart enough to know how to spend our money ourselves. We, we need the government to, to tell us how to do that. That's what socialism is. It's an agreement of the people a lot of times when it's democratically uh, voted on or chosen. Let's all give the government control of our money and our property and our businesses because the government will then take better care of us than we can take care of ourselves. Very, very low view of humanity. Listen, government is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. As I said, Christians are not anarchists. We believe in a good, strong government. However, government is not God and is not the solution to every problem. In fact, governments have caused more human suffering than anything else in the history of the world. In the Black Book of Communism, which was written in the 1990s by a group of scholars led by Stéphane Courtois, French, 
estimates that between 85 million and 100 million human beings lost their lives to communist experiments in the 20th century. Between 85 million and 100 million people lost their lives to communist experiments in the 20th century. 65 million were killed in China under Mao. 20 million in Russia. 2 million in North Korea. 2 million in Cambodia. And I could go on and on. That's what happens when the government is given all the power to solve all of society's problems and create heaven on earth. Mass death. This is why America was founded on the principle of limited what? Limited government. Limited government. The founders of our nation had a strong biblical worldview, even those who weren't strong Christians, although they were heavily influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview, which means that they believed something about human nature that socialists, proponents of socialism, do not. Most of them are atheists. The founders believed that human beings are sinful by nature. We are inherently evil. We have original sin that was handed down to us from Adam and Eve. And that's what they believe. And therefore, if too much power is given to one person or to a small group of people, they would in turn abuse that power. Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is the reason that the Constitution, by the way, enumerates the powers of the federal government so that it doesn't try to grab more and more power. This is the reason why we have three branches in the federal government, so they can keep each other in check, supposedly, even though the Supreme Court has run away with all the power. Uh, This is the reason why we have the Bill of Rights, to make sure the federal government doesn't get so big that it infringes on our rights. Henry David Thoreau said that the government is best which governs least. That government is best which governs least. Russell Kirk the famous conservative scholar, man is corrupt and therefore his best chance to attain justice and freedom lies in keeping the hands of ambitious men from that power which invites corruption. So is socialism evil? Yes. Should Christians support socialism? Absolutely not. Socialism sounds great. Equality, fairness, Helping the poor, but it's an immoral political system that must be rejected by Christians. Things like minimum wage laws, which the government forces a business and tells the business how they should be spending their money. Universal health care, government pensions, welfare for the poor, unemployment and disability benefits, bailouts for failing industries and failing companies. These things are based on theft and envy and the lie that it's the government's job to solve every problem. There's a better way. I just want to briefly explain it to you. A better way. Sometimes it's called capitalism. Sometimes it's called the free market. Sometimes it's called free enterprise. Sometimes it's called freedom economics. The central idea is freedom. Notice this. It's when individuals are free to work hard, to keep what they earn, and to trade freely with others at a price or at a wage to which both agree. Freedom economics works because it's not based on theft or envy. It's not based on slavery or idolatry. It's based on freedom and on natural self-interest or self-betterment. When people are free to use their resources to seek out their own best path, everyone benefits. Let me explain just briefly. In a free market, which is what we have in America, which what our country started out as, in a free market, the only way I can get money, the only way I survive, by the way, is if I get money. In a free market, the only way I can get money is if I provide a product or a service that other people are willing to purchase, right? 
Now that pushes me, motivates me to avoid laziness and to focus on meeting the needs of others. Not only that, but in a free market, I also must compete with the goods and services, the products and services that other people are offering in order to get money. Now that pushes me to not only avoid laziness and focus on meeting the needs of others, but it pushes me to continually increase the quality of my product and service. It pushes me to invent and to innovate, and it pushes me to keep my prices as low as possible. Not only that, but in a free market, the government does not rescue you whenever you face a crisis. This pushes me to be extremely wise and frugal with my money. It pushes me to live a morally upright life. It pushes me to take care of my health. It pushes me to be forward-thinking and to plan for the future. It pushes me to maintain strong bonds with family and friends and church. And it pushes me to form and to join private organizations who will then in turn help those who are facing crises. Now, in a free market, when all of society or the majority of society is behaving like this, what happens? Everybody benefits. All of society flourishes. Now, again, this is not to say that the government is not necessary. For freedom, economics, or capitalism to work, there must be an effective government backed by the rule of law, a respected judiciary, and a well-trained, well-restrained police force. So the government is necessary, but when the government then gets out of the way and it lets people keep most of their money, solve their problems themselves, pursue their own interests, the, re- the, the result is what's called wealth creation rather than wealth redistribution. The richer get richer, but the poor get richer too. And the middle class get richer as well. It's this very freedom economics that has enabled the United States to become the most prosperous nation in the history of mankind. Adam Smith called this phenomenon the invisible hand. Matthew Spaulding, he wrote in the, in the, about Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, which was highly influential upon our founders. Adam Smith argued that an invisible hand of market competition would turn man's natural desire for self-betterment into a socially beneficial system of natural liberty. Such an economy would not only give rise to an ordered society, but also by creating widespread material prosperity would liberate mankind from permanent poverty and scarcity. This system later came to be known as capitalism. Cal Thomas, the the famous journalist, he describes capitalism as that economic system that has allowed even the poorest American to live better and to have more opportunity for advancement than most of the rest of the world. Capitalism is not the perfect system. But there is no perfect system because we don't live in a perfect world. And that's the problem with socialists. They think we can achieve utopia, heaven on earth. It's not going to happen because people are evil. People are sinful. So capitalism is not the perfect system. But it's the best system that's ever been invented. And it's infinitely better than socialism. And so when you do your duty as a citizen and you go to the voting booth, I want you to remember that that, that socialism is immoral. Remember that it's not the government's job to care for the poor. It's not the government's job to solve every problem. And remember that when the government tries to help the poor, it can only do so by stealing somebody else's money. And that's called theft. Let's stand together and I'll close you in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the wisdom, Lord, that you've given us, Lord, wisdom for every sphere of life, wisdom for family, wisdom for marriage, wisdom for morality. You've given us wisdom uh, for our finances, and you've given us wisdom, not surprisingly, for politics, for government, which has such a big impact on our lives. Help us, Lord, not to ignore that wisdom, not to be deceived by those in our society who would like to discourage Christians from bringing the Bible to bear on politics. Help us, Lord, to think about politics from a biblical worldview and perspective, and help us, Lord, to be smart and help us to be influencers in our society. Because, Lord, when we do things your way, when we just follow your wisdom, everybody benefits. We pray, Lord, that you would spare our country from this immoral system of socialism, that, that you would reverse the tide, the trend. Lord, help us, Lord, to be change makers. And just wherever we work, wherever we play, wherever we go to school, in our families and neighborhoods. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming today. God bless you.